Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. While things are still unsettled in the world, we are going to be turning to some of our favorite episodes from the past four years, which I hope you'll enjoy. This week, I'm indulging one of my favorite childhood pastimes, which is talking all about horses. Humans have been accompanied by these four-legged creatures for thousands of years, They've carried us across the plains, farmed our fields, marched into battle, fed us, clothed us, and done so much to make life a little easier. But the horse is tucked away in our history, always present, but never quite center stage. We don't give the horse the attention it deserves, and that is not just my six-year-old self-speaking. Susanna Forrest's book, Age of the Horse, puts Equus Caballus squarely in the spotlight, from our first encounters with horses to the dazzling array of skills we've developed alongside them. Susanna joins us from Berlin. Thanks for talking to us about my favorite four-legged animals, Susanna. Thank you for having me on the show. So the very first words of your book are, this is not a history of the horse. Instead, we get this rollicking trail ride from prehistory to the present, which takes its direction from the various ways we've related to and used horses over the past thousands of years. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a bit about how you broke down this thousands-year-old relationship into these different themes? Well, really, the whole book came out of the first book I wrote, which was about women and horses and that history. And I had a very horsey childhood, and then I sort of gave it up at university. And then I went back to it a few years later, which I think is a pretty common pattern. And when I did that, I just discovered so many stories from history and also so many contemporary stories. And they didn't really have a place in the first book. So I wrote the proposal for this book really very quickly because I had so many things that I wanted to find out more about. You mentioned traveling to Mongolia, and you also went to a couple other places mm -hmm. in the book. Can you talk a little bit about how you picked where to go? Mongolia... Versailles, Virginia. How do you choose these places? Um, Mongolia was, it's because it's such a unique project where they've taken uh, Shavalsky horses or Taki, which are the only wild horse left. They actually went extinct in the wild in the 1960s in the Gobi Desert in Mongolia. And they were left in um, zoos and parks and reserves around the world. And then in the 1990s, they took them back and Hustai is the only place 
I think, in the world where they're actually on step, which is, you know, where horses are happiest. I went from there to China because I wanted to talk about horses as a status symbol. And, and there's just such a unique situation in China where they're trying to import this whole luxury equestrian lifestyle to all the millionaires and billionaires who are, you know, now popping up in China. With Versailles, this uh, French equestrian choreographer, Bartabas, suggested coming to Versailles, where he has this academy of people who are really entirely dedicated to dressage. And they also do fencing, they do Pilates, they do singing, and they also do Japanese samurai archery, which is a sort of <laughs> unusual skill set, but it's kind of his version of the academies that existed under, you know, the Sun King. Um, so that was a very special opportunity. And um, with Virginia, the it was there are a lot of places where horses are being used as therapy for veterans, but with Virginia, it was actually the army's own horses for thousands of years various armies have used horses for military purposes and here they are still buying horses but for this completely new role um, which I thought said something interesting about us and how we'd change towards horses. Yeah what I really liked about your book is how it seems like a study in contrast yeah how we have war horses and then we have horses used to heal the wounds of war mm-hmm. or horses being used for something as lowly as a button mm-hmm. or as elevated as a throne. Mm-hmm. Why'd you do that? I think anyone who writes about horses finds this. is just that they're so versatile and they've gone into so many different cultures and through so many different periods of time that they're just a mess of contradictions. You know, we there's this the famous quote from the French naturalist Buffon, he talks about them as the most noble conquest of man. And that kind of sums it up because we have this huge admiration for them on the one hand. And on the other hand, we've not always been <laughs> that that nice to horses, to be honest. I thought one of the, the really cool parts of your book is where you talk about how, um, I guess, threads of the ancient uses of horses are coming back into the modern day or, you know, have been pulled from the Amish, say, who never really stopped using horses in the old way and are now being put forward into this new environmentally friendly, almost like 100 percent recyclable way. Yeah, no, I mean, I originally wanted to go to uh, to Ethiopia for for that chapter because 60 percent of horses or something are working horses, largely in the developing world. And then I discovered that in America, there was this whole growing scene of people who weren't Amish or Mennonite, but who were using horses because it was the most, it was, you know, practically zero carbon solution. On the farm that I went to in Massachusetts, you know, the horses provide manure that goes to grow the hay that they then help harvest that is then fed to them so that then they can work on the farm. So you don't have to worry about going out to get petrochemicals. You don't have to worry about changing oil prices. You have this whole sort of perfect sort of internal system. And a lot of people have even sort of done calculations for how many horses you'd need to farm the amount of land currently in use in in America, which is something wonderful, like 23 million horses, which I think is more even than it was at peak horse, which was sometime in 1901. Um, and that movement in itself 
it's it's about far more than using horses. I think it's about rejecting a certain kind of economy. It's about saying, well, actually, I don't want to have, you know, a job in a warehouse with robot shelf stackers or I don't want to be in a call center or something like that. It's, you know, I want to be my own boss and to be as independent as I can be from, you know, this whole system. Plus, at one point, one of the farmers says, you'll never find a baby tractor in the forest, which is pretty cute. Yes. <laughs> if you think about all the components that go into a tractor or even a solar tractor, because, you know, they have developed sort of solar powered tractors now. Yeah, it's a lot of rubber, it's silicon, it's metal, it's, you know, all kinds of things and a lot of energy to put it together as well. Where the horse just, you know, eats hay and makes a new horse. So, <laughs> Right. Nature's perfect machine. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that um, the horse is being used in certain parts of the world to reject, you know, a very profit-driven, extractive kind of capitalist economy. But at mm. the same time, in a place like China, it's being used almost to to cement that or to be yeah. a status symbol of the elite. Can you yeah. talk a little bit more about uh, particularly polo and dressage in China? Yeah, in China, well the sort of equestrian elite and horse sports is obviously A, has a completely different history in China and B, got completely disrupted by communism. Uh, I was hosted by one sort of multimillionaire who was a genuine polo fan and he'd built this sort of ranch outside Beijing that was, you know, he'd modelled it kind of on an English country house, a sort of more comfortable, smaller scale English country house and the stables were basically attached to the living room, uh, which I think he was pretty genuinely in love with horses. But there are other projects there, one of which um, I'm actually still curious about what happened to it because, you know, it was sold to the public and to potential members as this is your entry to the global elite. You know, join the polo club, play polo, and you will be rubbing shoulders with the richest people in the world and the most noble people in the world and so on. It was this absolutely mad development. It had, a, I think, a, a five-star hotel with about 10 restaurants in it and um, polo pitches that could have snow blown over them for snow polo and then a whole complex of villas and high-rise luxury apartments. And topping it all off, there was um, a restaurant in the shape of a diamond rotating on top of one of these apartment blocks. And this was all sold around polo. Um and the thing with that is that there are a lot of horses in China. Most of them are traditional breeds or working horses, and they're mainly in in Mongolia. They're in Tibet, the far northwest among the Uyghur. So they're not so much in mainstream Chinese culture. And this kind of elite sort of sporting horse is definitely not there. And there isn't really the infrastructure to, to look after them yet. You know, the people who are importing these polo ponies and trying to encourage polo also needed to teach a lot of people to ride well enough to play polo very quickly. So I sort of talked to a few people, like a, a government official in charge of horse sports, and they were a little bit more realistic, I think, about the development of um, things like show jumping and dressage. You know, they knew it would take a while uh, they knew young people were increasingly into it, you know, those that could afford to have lessons because they're very expensive. But I think there's also been a few of these extraordinary projects, uh, but like this polo club, 
or another one that's meant to be a massive horse racing complex on the mainland, which is also complicated again because gambling isn't legal on the mainland in China. And the amount of money that goes into it is absolutely staggering. And it's all sold on this idea that, um, you know, you are nouveau riche, but that's okay because horse sports are going to teach you to fit in with all the sort of the lords and the ladies and um, sort of the old money in Europe or America. So it was really kind of quite interesting that they were trying to bring all this knowledge at once in or sort of relatively simultaneously. And it was all done on this idea that, you know, just association with horse sports would um, make you from what they call, I think, to how, which is a sort of vulgar rich into proper, elegant, stylish, rich person. That's so interesting. It kind of reminds me, too, of people today using horses for agriculture instead of tractors. It's like this really old school subculture Mm -hmm. that is being brought up as this new thing again. Yeah, definitely. So what was your most, what was the most unexpected bridal path that you went down in researching this book and in traveling places? Um... There were definitely a few instances where I thought I'd maybe bitten off uh, more than I could chew. Uh, So I went, for example, to Portugal to watch. There's a a type of bullfighting that's done on horseback, um, which I'd seen. There's a sort of viral video on YouTube, which is very sort of skillfully cut together to rock music. And you kind of think, wow, what incredible horsemanship (laughs) is going on there. But actually seeing that in person is not pretty. It's pretty unpleasant and sickening and um and the other thing that was unexpected I think is I sort of started digging around in the history of horse meat in America and just kind of kept on digging and that was a sort of endless trove of um extraordinary material it just brought in everything from terrorism to the mafia to presidential elections it just sort of never ended and I think that was probably the most surprising how are the mafia tied to horse meat? That seems so strange and unexpected. Was it black market trade? <laughs> the um, Because horse meat has always had this kind of dual status as um, a cheap meat and also a, it's it's kind of the, the, the odd meat out. It's the thing that Americans ate if they couldn't get beef, you know, during a war in poverty. And this was, I think, in the 1950s, um, a huge ring, I think, in Illinois, they discovered it was very much like the scandal in 2013 in Europe. Um, in this case, the mafia had basically been substituting horse meat for beef, and that had been fed to all the kids in the schools. It had been been sold in shops. It was a sort of a massive scale of a problem. And I found all these strange things, like stills from 1950s real crime TV shows of, you know, people murdered in meat lockers with horses hanging over them and things like that. And there were actually, I think, some murders and acid attack, I think, linked to this particular crime ring about horse meat. So one last question for you. Where do you see the horse, I guess, in relation to our future? How do you see the horse fitting into into humanity for the years to come? I think, you know, depending on how apocalyptic you want to get like with the Edwin Muir poem I quoted you know if we do suddenly have some kind of massive lack of fossil fuel crisis then we will probably be looking to horses and other draft animals sooner rather than later 
We have links in the show notes to Susanna Forrest's book, Age of the Horse, along with a few other equine treats. That's it for Smarty Pants. We've got another favorite, all about chairs, up next week for the holiday, and then a sparkling new episode for the first week of December. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.